Well, God bless you, my beloved. This is Minister S.N. Crockett, Jr. Jesus Christ, our Lord, Christian Fellowship, we're coming to you this evening, the 2nd of July. That's right, it's July. 2nd of July of 2020, with the first of our two weekly installments of our teaching ministry, The Truth of the Gospel, The Truth of the Gospel. We are in Ephesians and we are going to begin chapter 4 tonight. How far we'll get, I don't know, but we will not go past verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 4. We will not go past verse 10. And if we get that far, that's great. If we don't get that far, we'll come back on Sunday morning at 11 a.m., Lord willing, and we will continue. But we're in Ephesians chapter 4. Let's pray, then I'll read Ephesians 4, 1 through 10, and then I will do my best to expound on this chapter. In my opinion, this is the most difficult chapter of the six chapters of Ephesians. I will do my best. God help me, and uh, I solicit your prayers. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you, we bless you, we glorify you, we praise you, how we need your wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, how we ask that you fill us with the Holy Spirit that we may do your good, acceptable, and perfect will. We ask that you continue to open the eyes of our understanding, that we may continue to know what is the hope of our calling, that we may continue to glorify your dear Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom we glory, power, majesty, and dominion. We pray that as a result of this teaching and preaching, and teaching and preaching all over the world, from all those ministries that love you, that love your dear Son, Jesus, we pray that there will be fruit and gifts of the Holy Spirit, a manifestation, a great manifestation of fruit and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to your good, acceptable, and perfect will. By Jesus Christ, we pray. We pray for the sinner, that the sinner's heart will be touched, that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of the sinner's understanding, that the sinner would be saved. And we pray for the church, for those who are believers. We pray that they would be continually built up in the most holy faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be glory, power, majesty, and dominion. Amen. In his name, amen. Amen and amen. All right. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. I will read. Let me read from the King James Version, and then we will take it from there. Ephesians chapter 4. Remember, Ephesians has six chapters. So we're going into what you would consider to be the second half of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesian Christians, to the Ephesian believers. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another, in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first 
into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And I'll stop there. All right. So let's go into Ephesians 4, 1 through 10. And as I said, in my opinion, this is the most difficult of the six chapters of Ephesians, uh, as will become evident in a few minutes. But let's go into Ephesians. Verse 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. We have a calling. Paul says we have a calling. And that calling must be confirmed by our behavior. He says walk worthy. He says now that Jesus Christ has saved us by his grace, right? God's riches at Christ's expense. He's saying, uh, as the song said some years ago, uh, Aerosmith and then um, Run DMC, walk this way. (laughs) He's saying, walk this way. The Holy Apostle once again affirms the fact that he is the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go back to chapter 3 and verse 1, he'll say pretty much the same thing. Remember, Paul wrote several um, epistles from prison. And Ephesians is one of them. Ephesians is one of them. It's a prison, what we call a prison epistle, a letter from jail. And so if you go back to chapter 3 and verse 1, he says pretty much the same thing. He says in 3.1, for this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. And then in 4.1, he says, I, ther- I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Now, All of us who are saved are prisoners of the Lord. We belong to him. He's the master. We are his servants, his slaves. We are his sons and daughters. So we're all prisoners of the Lord. But Paul meant this literally. He was literally in prison for the gospel. Remember the Lord told him when he first got saved uh, that he would, told him through Ananias that he would suffer greatly for his sake, which of course, if the Lord said it, that means it had to come to pass. All right, so verse 1. Verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness, he's, if, he's almost saying the exact same thing he said if you read Ephesians chapter 2. He, he calls on the, I'm sorry, if you read Philippians, I should have said, excuse me. If, uh, Philippians chapter 2, he talks about having the mind of Christ, having a mind of meekness, not weakness, but meekness, having a mind of lowliness, having a mind of love and of unity, and then he goes on in Philippians to talk about how Jesus, though he is God, he, he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant, a slave, if you will, and was made in the likeness of men. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So he's really saying essentially the same thing here. With all lowliness and meekness, Remember, Jesus said about himself, I am meek and lowly. Uh, take my burden, take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. He says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering. The ability to suffer long, to put up with things for an elongated uh, uh, period of time. Forbearing one another in love, not quick to dismiss one another. 
not quick to uh, throw each other under the bus, but forbearing one another with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. He calls on on them and us to demonstrate the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, meekness, long-suffering, patience, temperance, self-control, forgiveness. These are all fruit or the results of being led by, filled with the Holy Spirit. So he calls on them and us to demonstrate the fruit of of the Holy Spirit in the midst of a world that cherishes the opposites. The world system, the world, the unregenerated world, the system that is under the grip of the evil one, The world cherishes the opposite. The world cherishes the aggressive uh, winner-take-all, throwing others under the bus. Uh, Me and my foe, I don't care about no more. The world cherishes the opposite of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's That's why Paul could say in Galatians, he could compare the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The works of the flesh are the works that the world, the unregenerated people of the world, uh, walk in and even glorify. All right, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity. That's a key theme of Ephesians. The unity of believers. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul is showing that we have a responsibility. We just can't say, well, I'm saved and the Holy Spirit is going to automatically do everything through me. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. We all have the Holy Spirit, but how much we allow the Holy Spirit to operate in our lives is another story. And so he says, endeavoring, always always with a sincere uh, uh, attempt endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit because we know the enemy will come to try to divide the church. The enemy will come to, to uh, as Jesus said, a house divided cannot stand. The enemy will come to divide the church, to split the church into factions, etc. And so he says, so Paul says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit. He said in, in another place, as much as is, uh, it, as is possible, live peaceably with all men, right? So in, here he's talking about the church, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, in the bond of peace. He's encouraging, he's encouraging the Ephesians not to fight, to get into factional fights with each other. He says it's a, it's a stain upon our Christian testimony. All right, so... He once again promotes the unity of the body of Christ. Remember, the, the church is the body of Christ, not the brick-and-mortar church. That's the building where we gather to worship. The church is the body of Christ, the believers. You're a believer. I'm a believer. We are the body of Christ. You may worship in a church down around the corner, and I may be sitting here or worshiping in a church around the other corner. But if we are believers in Jesus, we are the body of Christ. Verse 4, there is one body. He's, notice again, he's promoting unity. There is one body and one spirit. Even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. There's one body. He's, 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 uh, he's, he's teaching and preaching the opposite of, of, of what would be a schism. Right? 
We are all the body of Christ, the church of which Christ is the risen and ascended and exalted head. We are the body of Christ, but Jesus is the head of the body. Not only is Jesus the head of the body, but he's the chief cornerstone. Remember, the church is built upon the foundation of the holy apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. So Jesus holds all things together. He holds all things together, it says in Hebrews, by the word of his power. Or you could even say by the power of his word. All right, so we are all the body of Christ, all who are true believers. You might be a Methodist, I might be a Baptist, I might be a Pentecostal, you might be a Presbyterian, but if you are a believer in Jesus, if you believe that he died on the cross for our sins, if you believe that God bodily raised him from the dead, then we are all in the body of Christ. All right, so he says, there is one body, one spirit, even as ye are called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So although most Christians are Trinitarian, we believe in the Holy, Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we also believe that there is one true and living God. We believe what the Jews believe in Deuteronomy uh, 6 and 4. Behold, Israel, the Lord our God, is one God. Most Christians not all, but most Christians believe in, the, in, the, in one God who manifests himself in three separate persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, so we are all the body of Christ, the church of which Christ is the risen and ascended and exalted head. Though Trinitarian, meaning we believe in the Trinity, though Trinitarian, we believe that there is one Lord, there's one faith, there's one Lord. It comes out of Deuteronomy 6, 4. There's one Lord. We don't believe in polytheism. We believe in monotheism. One God who manifests himself according to his, uh, his will. One God who manifests himself in three separate persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You saw the Father mostly in the Old Testament. You saw the Son mostly in the Gospels. And now after the Gospels, after Jesus ascended back to heaven, he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. So we, so we see now mostly the ministry of the Holy Spirit once Jesus ascended back to the right hand of the Father. All right, so we got one Lord. We got one faith. Now we got one baptism. And this is, this is, this is kind of a sticky area here. I'm going to give you what I studied, and I'm going to give you what I believe. We're not going to fight. We're going to keep moving. The one baptism is where we run into difficulty of interpretation. Is it water baptism? When he says one Lord, one faith, one baptism, is it, one ba is it water baptism or is it baptism of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ? I believe it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. But there are other people who spend a lot of time studying God's word, etc., who believe that Paul, he was talking about uh, water baptism, that our testimony that we give, that we believe in Jesus and we get baptized, that, that Paul is talking about water baptism. I believe he's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. I'm going to give you two passages. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. I'm going to give you two passages. They're both out of 1 Corinthians, although there are more passages. The first passage comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says, I, um, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud 
and all passed through the sea. The cloud in the Old Testament especially represents the presence of God. Remember when Jesus took um, James, John, and Peter to the Mount of Transfiguration, and he was transfigured, glorified in their presence, and a cloud appeared. The cloud represents the presence of God. So Paul says here uh, that our fathers, he's talking about the Old Testament fathers, the patriarchs, etc., they were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses. So Moses here is a type of Christ. Well, just like we are all baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit, these Old Testament saints here who were under Moses' leadership, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So here the cloud represents the presence of God and the sea, um, the Red Sea, uh, represents, of course, uh, baptism, that, that rite of baptism. They all drank the same spiritual food. They all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, and they were drinking from that spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Okay, for 1 Corinthians 10. Then you go to 1 Corinthians 12. Paul talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But then he says in the 13th verse of 1 Corinthians 12, he says, for by one spirit we were all baptized. Notice he uses similar phraseology that he used in Ephesians, that, that one, unity, one, one God, one spirit. For by one spirit we were all baptized. He says all. He says all. All believers are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. He says, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks. So he really is preaching the same oneness that he preaches in Ephesians, whether Jew or Gentile, God and Christ uh, has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, etc. So for that reason, based on these passages, and there are other passages, but, but, but for this reason, I believe that when he says one Lord, one faith, one baptism, I believe he's talking about the baptism into the body of Christ. Because all believers are baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. You're not going to be baptized into the body of Christ if you're not a believer. And, and the Bible says the Lord knows those who are his. He knows who really accepts Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But there are people who are baptized who are not true believers. So there are people who are baptized in the water, but they're not true believers. They're, 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 they're whatever their motive is, I don't want to get into. But no Nobody who's faking it or nobody who's an unbeliever is baptized in the body of Christ. So I believe, based on what I believe is sound scriptural comparison, exegesis, and again, I'm not being dogmatic about it, but I believe that when Paul says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, I believe he's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. All right, let me move on. He says, one Lord, one faith. One baptism. Then he says, one God and Father of all. One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. Now that's not universalism, that's not Unitarianism. He's not saying that, that the whole that God is in everybody and everybody's saved. He's speaking to Ephesian believers. He's speaking to the believers here. He's speaking to those who are in the body of Christ. 
those like you who have trusted in Christ, those like me who have trusted in Christ. I trusted in Christ. Take this gum out of my mouth, excuse me. I trusted in Christ on May the 20th, 1979. I trusted in Christ. I was baptized into the body of Christ on May the 20th, 1979. So when Paul says, you all, you all, you all, he's not preaching universalism, Unitarianism, as some do. He's, that's not where he's coming from. He's, remember, if you go back to the beginning of the epistle, he's not speaking to everybody. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus. He's not speaking to everybody in Ephesus. He's speaking to the saints, the holy ones, the hagios. He's speaking to the holy ones, the saints who are in Ephesus. So when he says, in all, you all, God is in you all, through all, he's speaking to the Ephesian believers. He's not, just, he's not speaking to everybody in the Roman Empire at that time. He's speaking specifically to believers in Christ. One God and Father of all. As Christians, we should be unapologetically monotheistic. We should not apologize for the fact that we believe in one God. We don't have to apologize for that. If other people want to believe in, in many gods, and there are many gods. The Bible, the Bible says there are many gods. The Bible said, Paul said there are many gods, but there's only one true and living. There are 32 teams in the National Football League, but only one of them is the Super Bowl champion. There are 30 teams in the National Basketball Association, but only one of them is the champion. I don't know how many teams there are in Major League Baseball. I believe it's like 30 or 28 or 32. But only one, the Washington um, Capitals, I believe they're called. The Washington uh, Nationals, excuse me, the Capitals are the hockey team. Only one team, the Washington Nationals, won the uh, pennant. Won the, uh, won, you, know, you can tell I don't know a lot about baseball. Only one team, the Washington Nationals, won the World Series. So there are many gods there are thousands literally there are some religions that have literally thousands of gods in their religion there are many gods thousands probably millions but as christians we don't have to apologize for the fact for the fact that we believe there's one true behold israel the lord our god is one god that's that's the god that we believe in we believe in the god of the fathers of the patriarchs of, of, of abraham isaac jacob the patriarchs david and, and the prophets the father of our lord jesus christ that's the god we believe in if others want to believe in other gods that's their decision they, they, they can make that decision we believe there's one god all right one god and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all he's speaking to believers here all right Verse 7, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. We've all been given, afforded God's grace. We're saved by grace. We operate according to grace. The Bible says grace upon grace. God's unlimited grace. God's grace does not have a shelf life. God's grace doesn't have an expiration date. Grace upon grace. We say that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. So he says here at verse 7, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. The Holy Apostle again discusses that God's riches at Christ's expense, that God has given each of us grace according to the measure of the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice Paul is laying the foundation here for what he's going to say about how Jesus uh, gave gifts unto men, apostles, 
uh, uh, gave some to be apostles, etc. He's, he's laying the foundation for that. We're not going to get into that argument this week. We'll get into that argument uh, next week. But he says in verse 8, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. All right, this is another sticky, just like the one Lord, one faith, one baptism passage. This is also a sticky passage, if I can use the word sticky. All right. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. All right. So what's he talking about here? All right, we've got to go to Psalm 68 here. I'm not going to read the whole Psalm because it's kind of lengthy. But Psalm 68, if you look at the context of it, it's a, it, it, a lot of it talks about a triumphal procession of a victorious king. A lot of it talks about a triumphal, triumphal procession of a, vi of a victorious king. Let me start at verse uh, 12 of Psalm 68. Kings of armies did flee apace, and she that tarried at home divided the spoil. You can hear the victorious uh, victory of a king. Though ye have leaned among the plot pots, yet shall ye be as the wings of a dove covered with silver, and her feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow in Salmon. The hill of God is as the hill of Bashan, and high hill is the hill of Bashan. Why leap ye, ye high hills? This is the hill which God desireth to dwell in. Yea, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are twenty thousand, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai. In the holy place. Then in verse 18, this is when Paul says he ascended on high. Paul is quoting Psalm 68 and 18. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because remember at that time the New Testament had not yet been written. Had not been what we call canonized. So these apostles are getting revelation from the Holy Spirit. They're getting revelation from the Old what we call the Old Testament. In order to formulate the New Testament. So Psalm 68, 18, thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. It's talking about the, the procession of a victorious king, which Paul is relating it to Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Thou hast ascended on high in his ascension, of course. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men. Yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Let me read verse 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation, Selah. So when Paul quotes, when Paul says, wherefore when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men, he's quoting what we call Psalm 68 and 18. He's quoting the, uh, much of the New Testament is a requotation of the Old Testament in context. Because remember the New Testament uh, had not yet been written and canonized. So when they're preaching, remember when Peter stood up and preached at Pentecost, he, he, he couldn't go to Ephesians and Galatians and Second Peter because they hadn't yet been written. Remember, he went to Joel. He went to the Psalms, right? The, he went to Joel. The day of the Lord shall come and he shall pour out his spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men would dream dreams. Your young men would see visions, etc. Peter had to quote the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, the prophets, the law, the writings. So 
This is what Paul is doing here. He's quoting Psalm 68 and 18. But let's see if we can figure out what he means by that, okay? But let me read uh, Ephesians again. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, we, we know Jesus rose from the dead bodily. We know the Father raised him from the dead. We know he walked the earth for 40 days, being seen by above about 500 disciples. He didn't show himself to his enemies. That, that's coming in another day in the Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. When he comes back, it says, all eyes shall see him, even those who pierced him. When Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't go to Pilate and, and the Jews who rejected him and say, nah, 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 I told you I was going to rise from the dead. No, he showed himself alive, the Bible says, after his passion, his suffering, by many infallible proofs, being seen by them for 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. But remember, he eventually, after the 40 days, because he had to ascend, because if he didn't go back to the presence of the Father, uh, he wouldn't have sent the Holy Spirit. So, he ascended after his resurrection. He ascended back on high. Let me read the verse one more time, then I'll give my best explanation. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. All right. Let's see if we can let's see if we can wrestle with that a little bit here. All right. Jesus ascended in resurrection victory over death and the grave. Jesus ascended in resurrection victory over death and the grave. Destroy this temple, he said, in three days, I'll raise it up. Remember he said that and the Jews thought he was talking about Herod's temple. He was talking about his body himself. Destroy this temple, in three days, I'll raise it up. Jesus ascended in resurrection victory over death and the grave and everything even remotely associated with the underworld. And, and, and if you want to, if you want to go back, if you want to look at other scriptures related to this, I've got a couple of uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 10 talks about he, how he humbled himself and he became obedient unto the point of death. Then the Bible says, even the death of the cross, wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. So Philippians 2 1 through 10, Matthew 16, where Jesus said to his followers, do me a favor, close that door, okay? Close that door. Jesus said to his followers, he said, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're uh, Ezekiel. Some say you're Elijah, one of the prophets. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, Peter said, the son of the living God. Jesus said, Peter, blessed are you, Simon. Close the door. Thank you, baby. Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this unto you, but my Father in heaven. And I say unto you, you are Peter, Petros, rock. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So when, so when Jesus rose from the dead, he triumphed. The Bible says he triumphed over all principalities and powers. So when we see the Psalm 68, 18, and the Ephesians 4, 8, which is based on Psalm 68, 18, we see the triumphal ascension of a victorious king. And that triumphal ascension, of course, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, let me give you a couple of, uh, of, um, of, of renditions of this passage. The first one is uh, Holman, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. He took captive, he took the captives captive. 
But the King James, he led captivity captive. That's also, that's also the New King James. The, the New American Standard Bible, he led captive a host of captives. Let me do it one more time. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, he took the captives captive. The King James and the New King James, he led captivity captive. The New American Standard Bible, he led captive a host of captives. We know it's a triumphal ascension. We know it's a triumphal um, procession. But there are several interpretations of who these captives are. Is this to be taken literally? Or is it Paul just using this language figuratively to describe the triumphal procession of Jesus after his glorious resurrection, etc.? So I say here in my notes, is this a figurative expression of Christ's triumph over the grave and his enemies? Or did he literally lead people from captivity to his glorious liberty? Let me read that one more time. Is this a figurative expression of Christ's triumph over the grave and his enemies? Or did he literally, and I'm a literalist, I take the Bible literally. I'm, I'm not one who's into school of thought about the Bible just being, you know, uh, a bunch of allegories. I'm not in that school. I'm in the literal school. I'm in the school of thought, take the Bible literally unless you have a reason not to. So I'm, I'm, I'm not letting you know, I'm not in the school of thought of the Bible is nothing but a bunch of allegories. I'm, I'm not in that school of thought. I'm far away from that. But the Bible does use figurative language. All right. So I say, is this a figurative expression of Christ's triumph over the grave and his enemies? Or did he literally lead people from captivity to this glorious liberty? And I'm going to give you several passages of scripture before we close. One that comes to my mind is in Matthew 27 something strange something very strange happened uh, after Jesus resurrection and I'm, I'm wondering I'm not saying I'm not being dogmatic I'm wondering is there a connection between that Ephesians passage and what happened here in Matthew in Matthew let me start at verse uh, 46 Matthew 27, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is fulfilling the 22nd Psalm there. Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, This man calls for Elijah. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, let be, let us see whether Elias will come to, or Elijah will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. He gave up the ghost. He died. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks split open. Now here's the part I want to get to. Verse 52. And the graves were opened. Do you see where I'm making the connection between here and the Ephesians passage? The Psalm 68, 18, the, and, and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints. These are Old Testament saints because the New Testament church had not yet been formed. And the graves were opened and many, body, many bodies of the saints which slept. Who, who these saints were, we don't know. It doesn't say. It doesn't say Daniel, Ezekiel, Nahum, Habakkuk, Hosea. It just says saints. Right and, and the graves were open and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves 
after his resurrection. What is the purpose? There had to be a reason for this happening. God doesn't do anything just willy-nilly, haphazardly. There was a reason that God allowed this to happen. It's like it's like a a, a picture. A, a, um, it's like a it's like a preview. You know how you see a movie and you'll see the preview. You'll click on your on demand. It'll say, "Look at this trailer." You'll see a trailer, and they'll show you like a three minute uh, spot of a movie that you might want to you know rent or whatever. Graves were open, and many bodies of the it says many it doesn't say how many. It says many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection. They had to come out after Jesus' resurrection because Jesus is the first fruits from the dead. Jesus is the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. He's not the first one to be resurrected from the dead, but he's the first fruits of the, of the new creation, if you will. He's the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. The graves were open, verse 52. Many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city. They, 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 they walked into the holy city. What a sight that had to be. We don't know who these saints were, but they walked into the holy city. Glory to the Lamb of God. They came out of the graves after his resurrection. They went into the holy city, which is Jerusalem, right? And appeared unto many. And when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. But, but, but do you see where I'm drawing a, a possible uh, connection between the, the saints coming out of the graves after, after his resurrection and the, and the Ephesians 4, 8 and the Psalm 68 and 8? He has led captivity captive. He has a triumphal procession. It came out of the grave. I'm just, I'm just showing you a possible, a possible relationship with here. All right. Okay. Let me show you a few more and then I'll close. Also, is there a connection between Ephesians 4 and 7? Is that where I was? I thought I was in 4, 8. Ephesians 4, it's actually uh, 4, 7, and 8. Uh, 1 Peter 3, 18 uh, through 20. Again, I'm, I'm saying, is there, is there a possible connection? All right. Is there a possible connection? Is there a possible connection? Let me read first Peter to you three. I'm going to start at uh, verse 18 for Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the spirit. Hallelujah. Quickened. Remember what Paul said to the Ephesians in chapter two, you have he quickened. You were dead. And trespasses and sin. But listen to verse 19. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Which sometime were disobedient. When once the long suffering of God. So it doesn't sound like here. Here it doesn't sound like he's he's uh, doing. He's preaching to. Um, it doesn't sound like these are the same individuals that like like these individuals here. These individuals in Matthew 27, 51, 52, those are, those are saints. Those were saints. Those are believers. They came, Old Testament believers. They came out of the graves after Jesus' resurrection. They went to the holy city, Jerusalem, and appeared unto many. This right here appears to be something different. He went and preached unto the spirits in prison. This sounds here like Jesus went 
and declared his victory over demonic principalities and powers. That's what it sounds like it's saying here in Peter, which, is, which, which would be different to a certain extent from the Matthew passage. But I'm just trying to show you possible relationships here. For Christ, uh, excuse me, by which he also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. I'm wondering if these were those spirits, if you go back to Genesis chapter 6, were these those spirits? those demonic Nephilim that came down and impregnated women. If you go back to Genesis chapter 6, there were these Nephilim, these demonic angels, uh, and they came down and impregnated women. It was an attempt by Satan to corrupt the seed. Uh, remember, God promised that the seed would eventually come to Christ, etc. And that was one of the reasons that God destroyed the world in the days of Noah. He destroyed everybody except Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives. Eight people were saved. So, um, so if, if you look at the Peter passage, by which also he went and preached, it says Jesus went and preached. This is where people say Jesus went to hell and, and, and had a three-day revival, etc. It says here in First Peter, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits, it says, in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God. So it's not talking about Noah and his sons and their wives, because they were they were in the ark, they were saved. It says these spirits were disobedient, when sometime which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. So, so, so the Lord, the Holy Spirit, gives Peter a time reference. He's not just talking about some time, you know, after Adam and Eve or whatever. He, he gives a specific time period in the days of Noah. Go back to Genesis chapter 6. When once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, it is said that Noah preached 120 years, built the ark 120 years. It's going to rain, it's going to rain, y'all. It's going to rain, it's going to rain, it's going to rain. Put on your mask. It's going to rain. Put your mask on. It's going to rain. Put your mask on. Social distancing. It's going to rain. It's going to rain. It's going to rain. It's going to rain. Social distancing. Put your mask on. It's going to rain. Glory to God. Where God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. So is there a relationship between that passage? Because the Bible does say that when Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible says he triumphed over principalities and powers. He triumphed over them. So that's why I mentioned the first Peter passage there. Is there a connection between the Ephesians passage and Colossians 2.15? Let me read that to you. We're going to close here in a minute. Is there, is there a connection between the uh, Ephesians passage, the Ephesians, he, the triumphal procession of Jesus over principalities and powers? It says in Colossians 2, it says in Colossians, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start at verse, um, verse 12. Buried with Jesus in baptism. So that could give credence to the one Lord, one faith baptism. There are some who say it's water baptism. Well, we already had that discussion. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation, through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sin, remember he said that to the Ephesians in chapter 2, you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened, 
together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. He took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Verse 15 is the, really one, is the, is the one I really wanted to get to. And having spoiled principalities and powers, Jesus triumphed over satanic principalities and powers. Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over. Even though when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't get no, he didn't get up in the face of 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 his human critics and enemies. He didn't he didn't run to the Sanhedrin and say, you know, nah, 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 I told y'all, I told y'all. He didn't run to Pontius Pilate. No, no. But it says right here that he made an open show, triumphing over them in it. Jesus, triumph. You, you have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. So is there a connection between the Ephesians 4, 8, the Psalm 68, 18, and the Colossians passage here? Having spoiled principalities and powers. Remember Paul talked about principalities and, and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. Having spoiled principalities and powers. Sometimes principalities and powers can mean human government. But sometimes principalities and powers can mean demonic, um, um, Satan's kingdom. Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. When he, he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. All right. Uh, let's see here. He first descended. And I'm, in, I'm in verse nine here. Let me read verse 9 to you, Ephesians 4, 9. We're almost done here because I'm not going to go past verse 10. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? Now, now here we go. It's sticky again. What, what do you mean he descended into the lower parts of the earth? Does it mean he descended to the earth from heaven? Philippians 2, he became flesh, or John 1, 14, he became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, he humbled himself and became, uh, you know, he made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. Or does it go deeper than that? He first descended is the lower parts of the earth, what he's talking about in 1 Peter, where it says he went and preached unto the spirits in prison who once were in the days of Noah disobedient. Do you, do, 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 do you see how I'm drawing the possible how I'm drawing the possible connection? Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, all power, not black power, and certainly not white power. He said, All power is given unto me because of his triumphal resurrection. From the dead, all power. Now, he, now, we know as the word of God, he was already God. He already had all power. But remember, he made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant. He was made, a, Hebrew says he was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So, he, 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 yes, we know that Jesus is from eternity as the word of God. But remember, he became flesh and subjected himself both to, to human authority, his parents, etc., but he also subjected himself into a human body. But he never stopped being God. 
For once he rose from the dead, all power. I've triumphed over principalities. I've triumphed over powers. I've triumphed over satanic principalities and powers. I defeated Satan at the cross. So when he says in Matthew 28, 18, all power is in my hand. Glory to the Lamb of God in heaven and in earth. This is what I'm telling you. The, the, this fourth chapter here, it's beautiful, but it, it can be, uh, you know, what, what is he talking about? Because to the lower parts of the earth, is that, is that related to 1 Peter 3? He went and preached into the spirits in prison. It could be. It could be. Or it could be, as one translation says, he descended to the lower parts, comma, the earth. It could be merely talking about how, how the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. There's scriptural support for both, for both views. All right, let me read verse 10, and then we're going to close here for today, and then we'll pick, up, uh, we'll pick up here on Sunday morning. Verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 4. Let me go back to verse 6. One Lord, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith when he ascended up on high, hallelujah, it's just, it's tri no matter what the correct interpretation is, it's, a tri it's, triumphal. it's a triumphal procession of Jesus. He, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended? He had to come down, right? He had to come down from heaven. What is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? That could be talking about, again, the first Peter passage. The Bible does mention, uh, um, um, it says in Philippians, that every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. So there is an underworld. We know there's an underworld. And here I don't mean organized crime, the underworld, the mafia. I'm not talking about that. But we know there is an underworld. We know there is an underworld. So, so, so the first Peter passage could indeed relate to what I'm talking about here. All right. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. He gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? Verse 10, I'll stop here. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens. Remember, there are three heavens, the first, second, and third heaven, right? He ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill or fulfill, that he might fulfill all things. And, and, and that's where we're going to stop. The ascension of Jesus is a biblical, historical fact. The ascension of Jesus is a biblical, historical fact. The ascension of Jesus is a biblical, historical fact. Mark 16 and um, uh, 19. So then after the Lord had spoken unto his disciples, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. That's his ascension, right? Luke 24 and 51. Luke 24 and 51. Remember, we're talking about his ascension. And it came to pass while he blessed his disciples, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. He ascended on high, right? John doesn't give us uh, an ascension passage 
But I but there are passages in John. I'm going to read two of them to you. There are passages in John. John 17, 5, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine old self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Jesus is saying, Father, after I go to the cross, um, uh, you know, raise me from the dead, glorify me, you know, ascend me back to heaven. With the glory I had with you before the world was, showing that Jesus is eternal. That was John 17 and 5. Then John 17 and 24 Father, I will that they also, talking about believers, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. He's, he's, he, Jesus is projecting into the future because he said this before the cross, but he knows the cross is only temporary humiliation and shame. So he's projecting to the day when he will ascend on high. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. So John doesn't have an ascension passage as Mark and Luke do. Uh, Matthew doesn't have an ascension passage either. But, but, Matthew, but Mark and Luke do. But John has, Lord, restore unto me the glory that I had with you before the world was, etc. And then my last passage, and then we'll close here is Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 and verse 9. Let me read that to you. And then we will continue on Sunday. Acts 1, 9. When he had spoken these things, talking about Jesus, while they beheld, he was taken up. Hallelujah. And a cloud received. Remember I told you the cloud represents the presence of God. And a cloud received him out of their sight. Acts 1 9. So there are ascension patterns, and there are many more. I just, you know, I don't want to go into all of them. These are ascension, the ascension of Jesus is undeniable. It's, there, it's a historical, biblical fact. God bless you, my beloved. Ephesians 4 1 through 10, in my opinion, is the most difficult of the um, passages. I did my best. I told you some things, you know, I'm, I'm really not sure about. There are, even, there are even people, you know, who, who, who forgot more about the Bible than I know. And they'll say, well, you know, we're, we're, it could be this, it could be that. We're not sure. Right. So uh, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 10, we'll pick up on Sunday morning at 11 a.m. We'll continue our study. I believe it has 32 verses, but we won't, we won't cover all 32. We might get as far as like verse 17, 18, 20 or something like that. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you just for the privilege of mentioning your name, the dear name of your son, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We just, we just ask, ask that you continue to open the eyes of our understanding that we may know what is your good, acceptable and perfect will. Bless those churches that are still struggling, Lord, to survive in the midst of COVID-19. We pray that you will bless them in every way possible by your Holy Spirit. Bless them, Lord. Sustain them financially, spiritually, Lord. For the church is the body of your dear son, Jesus. We bless you and we thank you through Jesus Christ. We pray that as a result of this teaching and preaching, preaching and teaching all over the world, we pray that there will be fruit, a manifestation, a great manifestation of fruit and gifts of the Holy Spirit through your Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Glory, power, majesty, and dominion, eternal kingdom be his forever and ever. Amen. God bless you, my beloved. We will talk again on Sunday. If you're not already obligated somewhere else, join us at 11 a.m. for our second installment of the truth of the gospel. We'll continue in Ephesians chapter 4.